Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And I'm Riley. And today, we are going to be giving our hot take review on the game we just finished playing, Wolves. But before we do, we always have some poll results to discuss at the beginning of our show. And this week on Twitter, I asked the question, have you thought about designing a board game? And the options I gave were yes, and I've published at 14%. Wow, pretty heavy, heavy amount of people that published that respond on this. Yes, and made prototypes 27%. Yes, thought about it 39%. And nope was 20%. So 80% of the people that responded on this Twitter and Facebook group poll have at least thought about making a board game. And many of them are in the process of doing that. How'd you guys answer this question? I answered this one with a resounding no. I have never even put a moment's thought into designing a board game. I don't think I'd have any talent for it. But um, interestingly, I should be maybe a publisher because my son came up with a pretty clever idea for a board game. It was about board game podcasting. And there was a gear track for your microphone and various things. There was the listeners were your victory points. And there was also a family track. How much time are you not spending with your family because you're busy <laughs> board game podcasting? Oof, that that stings. I would definitely fail on the spending time with family track tonight. That's mega negative points. I put, I have thought about it. I always want to do some kind of uh, like a deck builder hockey game in the vein of Baseball Highlights 2045 where you maybe have something where you can build line changes and you're shifting around, getting your optimal decks out there and then these guys get tired. I don't know. So that's my idea. I'm going to put that out there for people to steal and make it better than I could ever possibly come up with. That's my one. But not even half, can I say half-assed? Not even, it's like eighth-assed thought of board game idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm in a design guild here in Utah, so I have done a couple of prototypes. I've got maybe two dozen rule books written up, uh, but only maybe like eight or nine actual prototypes. But nothing published. That's it? <laughs> Only eight or nine? That's, uh, you get that number up, Riley. Riley, what would take you to the next step? Are you just happy to just get it to there and then be like, nah, I'm going to move on to my next design? Or is that, like, are there any that you're like, well, okay, I feel like this one's pretty close. Maybe I need to polish it and get it out in, in front of a publisher. What's the next step for you? That's a great question that I don't have any. No, uh, I, I'm not sure. You know, I think that usually I get to a certain point and I, I'm just kind of like tired of it. You Once you go through like so much play testing and you're like, OK, yeah, now I know what I need to work on. But then getting back to working on that and like refining it, usually I, I get another idea and I start going after that. So maybe, you know, better ADHD meds or something. <laughs> Riley, one of the reasons I asked the question tonight was because I knew you were going to be on the show. And in fact, I didn't really do a proper introduction. So if those of you are listening or you're hearing Riley's voice for the first time tonight, Riley is one of our friends from another podcast, The Board Game Community Show. And uh, we invited him on to play the game with us tonight and join us. But Riley is also commonly talks about publishing. In fact, on your show, you always ask the question about unique board game design ideas, or you, you call it something else. But um, I mentioned on when I was a guest on your show, I mentioned a couple of the ideas I had for for designing a board for, you know, a couple of board games that I had in mind. And you took it further than I did. You said that you got to the point where you like, you know, you got it to uh, play testing and you realized what you needed to do with it. And then you kind of got tired of messing with that game. Well, I did that exactly twice with games where I got it to prototype phase 
decided I didn't want to spend any more time messing with it and then decided I'm never going to do this again because why would I even take it that far? So, I mean, congrats on continuing to go after this thing that you haven't found a route to get to the finish line at this point. Do you have do you have anything that you are like actively really excited about? Uh, there was one that I really, really liked. I went and I did like a con- uh, online convention, play testing it, got a lot of good feedback on it. And some people were like, you really need to play Star Wars Outer Rim because it was it was based on Futurama. And so you're just, you know, delivering goods uh, in the kind of a goofy universe. There would be just different like ways of moving about our solar system and delivering things to different places. And there might be like little events that happen throughout the universe. And maybe you want to avoid certain areas. So as I was doing that, a lot of people were saying, you got to get out of rim. And I was like, I know I already want it. And then I got it. I think that actually discouraged me because I was like, this game is so much better than I could ever design this thing. But mine was, people were saying like, yours is a lighter weight version of that. And so to me, that's like, oh yeah, you're right. Like my goal isn't to have it be really super heavy. Uh, After playing Outer Rim, I think I had to get that out of my head. Like, oh my gosh, you can do like all these like story things and branching, you know, upgrading your ships and all this other stuff. Like, and I think that was maybe taking it too far for me. So I had to take a step back for that reason. I got too excited by Outer Rim. And the whole thing sounds so daunting. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. Well, and I know, you know, you guys are like kind of tepid on Blood Rage here. It's not your favorite game. Wrong. (laughs) But when I talked to Eric, he talked about how when designing that, there was a part that everybody loved and it was their favorite part of the game, but everything else felt boring. And so he ended up actually taking that favorite part of the game out of the game that made it so that everything else came up and they were like, wow, this is great. All I love this part, this part, this part, instead of just being like, I loved this one part and the others were, you know, like still fun, but not at that level. Yeah. Honestly, the way I always look at it is like, there are so many, there's so many board games being published as is where, you know, we can't even play all of them. So what am I going to contribute? And I always find that all my ideas, the concept that come in my mind might sound fun to me, but they're basically derivative of other games. And, you know, a few designers have pulled that off, right? Like the designer of Arc Nova basically just took a bunch of mechanisms from other games, put it into a game that a lot of people love. But most of the time you want something that's a little original, that feels unique, that kind of breaks ground. Otherwise, why are you even doing it? So I don't see myself ever really pursuing a that's crazy you say that tim because every euro game you buy is exactly the same as all the other euro <laughs> games you buy. a lot of times it's the exact same artwork <laughs> we had a bunch of people that responded on twitter at bg underscore hot takes as well as on our facebook group which is the board game hot takes facebook group and you can read those those posts but most of them a lot of people had ideas things that they'd either started to publish or were kind of percolating in their minds but hadn't quite gotten there yet so Obviously, I think it's like it's one of these hobbies where you just you start playing and you're like, I want to be a part of this. Some of us, we design. Some of us, we just talk about it and start podcasts. And maybe that's the best we're ever going to do in the industry. But we still get to be a part of the hobby. All right. Well, let's jump into a description of Wolves. In Wolves, three to six players are agrarian community leaders struggling to keep their people alive in a harsh environment with limited resources and only each other to count on. Players will have to work together because in Wolves, if one community fails, everybody fails. But that does not mean there's no opportunity for individual glory. Assuming all communities survive, the player held in the highest esteem at the end of the game will be elected the chief of all the communities. Now before jumping into the play mechanics, I just want to spend a minute talking about the world of Wolves. 
This game is set in an alternate universe of Coyote and Crow, which is a role-playing game in which a climate disaster prevents European colonization of North America. As a result, the indigenous communities throughout the continent thrive and develop unencumbered by the yoke of colonialism. Wolves is something of a prequel to Coyote and Crow, and it's a board game, of course. It takes place in the early years following the disaster when the small communities are just struggling to survive. The game takes place over a timeline of up to eight rounds. The reason I say up to eight rounds is that during each round, players will need to meet the needs of their communities as represented by the resources corn, bison, and fish. Without these resources, a community can't survive, and if one community starves, the game ends immediately with a loss for all players. Needless to say, this creates a huge incentive for players to ensure that everybody survives. Fortunately, the game provides a mechanism to do just that gifting, a process by which players can offer resources to other players to help them meet their community's needs. And this isn't just good for the overall well-being of the group, it's also a way for players to earn much-coveted status, which is the way that the winner is going to be selected. Each round is made up of a series of steps, which include gathering resources, which is done through a card draw with a strong push-your-luck mechanism, meeting the community's needs, and gifting. Players will also have the opportunity to acquire knowledge cards that grant special abilities to their community. At the end of the eighth round, assuming that everyone's still alive, the group is awarded a win, and the player with the highest status will be granted an additional win for their prowess. Wolves was designed by Connor Alexander and will be published by Coyote and Crow Games. It's actually the subject of a current Kickstarter that's active and will be running through August 7th. So if you like what you hear on this episode, go ahead and check it out. Thanks for that description, Chris. And we're going to be jumping into the gameplay and mechanisms of Wolves. Before we do, I want to call out two things. Number one is that we don't often do games that are currently on Kickstarter. The last one was almost a year ago. So, um, you know, this is our, our opportunity to play a game that really isn't fully polished. The rulebook may be added a little bit. The art and uh, some of the, the gameplay mechanisms even may be changed before it actually gets published and sent out to backers. So take it with a grain of salt with what we play tonight. We think is going to be a pretty close version to the final. The second thing I wanted to call out was that um, there was another game published just a year ago called The Wolves. And that did cause some confusion for me. So if you're looking this game up, make sure you're looking at Wolves and not The Wolves because very close, obviously, but I think very different games from what I can tell with them. Well, before jumping into the mechanisms, I just wanted to mention a quick thing. This game is one that I've actually been looking forward to for a long time. I mentioned Coyote and Crow in the game description. Anybody who's listened to the show has probably heard me talk about this one before. It's a role-playing game. I don't even play role-playing games, but I bought this one because I was passionate about the idea of supporting uh, indigenous design games. And I think we need more of those. I think there's a world of stories out there that most of us in game world and just media world generally just don't hear often enough of it. So that was something I was really excited about. And then I checked out the project and man, this thing was cool. The art's amazing. The stories are amazing. I enjoyed it just to get the book and to read it, even though I don't, I don't even RPG. But from day one, I was thinking to myself, why is it that we don't have a board game set in this world? So I was going into this pretty excited because now we have the board game that's set in the world of Coyote and Crow. So for mechanisms, man, there is a ton to talk about in this game. It's unlike any game that I think I've ever played before, and a lot of that has to do with the semi-co-op nature of it. 
the fact that the entire community has to survive or there's no winner at all. So you have an incentive to keep everybody else alive, even if they're also going to be competing with you for those endgame points. But the thing I want to touch on here is what I thought was the most exciting part of this game. And that wasn't as unique, but it was super exciting. And that was the push your luck card draw that gives you your resources. So during the, I think it was a second or third step of the of each round, and this is a game that takes place over very defined steps within the round, you do a card draw where you pull cards and each card is a potential resource that you're going to use to feed your people or to provide a gift. And you have three leader cards in there. The fewer leader cards you draw, the better off you are. You can get bonuses for having zero or one. But if you draw that third, you are said to have overstretched. And if you overstretch, then you're kind of hosed because the next round, you're not going to be able to do any gathering, any card drawing at all. So it's something you want to be very careful of. That's a big dynamic in the game. But when I was pulling those cards during the gathering, man, I, my heart was thumping every single time. Because, you know, I don't know. I just, I love, I love push your luck. I love Wonderland's war where you've got that, that drawing the tokens out during the battle. And this one, I think in a way was almost even more tense because there was so much that was going to flow out of that card draw. I just, I absolutely love that. Yeah, that card draw was neat, Chris. One thing I want to add on to there, and I'm going to bump against theme. I'm not going to go into theme because that's a later segment, but each of the, the leaders, the what do you call them, Chris? Aggregarian resource collection groups, what has a different, you know, a different alleged region that they're from. So maybe they're better at fishing, or maybe they're better at hunting. So their decks are reflected. Some decks have more bison cards. Some decks have more fish cards. So you're kind of using that knowledge to go around like, oh, maybe Riley over here, he's gonna have some fish he can feed in my group when the time comes. So I'm not too worried about that. And then, so yeah, that deck pull, Chris is is really really fascinating so i'm gonna pause right there and turn over to riley yeah i mean i agree with that that's that was one of the really interesting things was that after the i don't know first or second round we started realizing yeah i definitely am feeling that lack of fish i'm definitely feeling that in my deck i can't necessarily rely on myself for that but there's also the aspect of late a little bit later in the game where you get the uh, availability cards. Yeah. So when those get drawn and you have to get rid of certain cards, everybody has to get rid of a bison and then everybody's deck is thinning. And then the very last round, it's terrifying because you're getting rid of seven random cards, essentially. So now everybody's decks are kind of imbalanced and you don't know if you're going to survive that final round. But I, th- I thought that was really interesting. Well, let me just talk about the availability. And, and that was fascinating how those, you know, as you get to later rounds, you start to pull cards out of your deck. But then the last round was where it really got interesting because everyone just pulls seven non-leader cards out of your deck. And then in that last round, everyone's decks are drastically asymmetric, which I think gives the opportunity for somebody who's a little bit behind to maybe win in that last round or somebody who hasn't been doing well to win that last round. Uh, so I like that. I like that the, it kind of really changes up the game in the last round going into it. But I'm going to talk about the leader cards a little bit, right? You got these three in your deck. If you draw the third one out, you basically bust and it's bad. It's like I was the only one that I think did it up until the last round. But when you bust, not only do you not get to continue drawing, but also uh, and you don't get those leader cards to use in that round, which can be wild resources or some other benefits. But also you don't even get to do the drawing in the next phase. And I think that was a little too punishing to be fun. And it, now what, what it did do was interesting is that 
going to the next phase, I got some extra bonus just for not even having leader cards because they're one of the elements, one of the choices you could decide when you're drawing out of your deck and pushing your luck is, do I keep pushing until I at least get to that second leader? Which doesn't hurt me too bad, but you're giving up basically five points for that round if you don't draw that second leader or 10 points if you don't draw the first leader. So you have some choices to make there. So if you bust the next round, you automatically get that 10 points, but you don't get to do anything in that round. And that just wasn't very fun, you know, and so that was a little bit disappointing to me that the one time in the, the time I busted, I drew f- exactly four cards and three of them were leaders. My first two were leaders. Do I just stop there? Well, that's not a fun round either. Heck no, I'm going to draw a couple more cards. My fourth card was a leader. So I had a completely unfun round there and nothing to do in that round after that. And so that was a, a, a letdown as far as the way that that works in a push your luck game. It did have a catch up mechanism. I still had the opportunity to get points in the next round, but I didn't have much play in the next round. And so that was a disappointment. But I did think the choice of when to push, when to stop with those leaders was interesting on a variety of fronts. Not only, again, do you just do you stop at the first one? Do you stop at the second one? Do you push a little bit further? And I had some really exciting moments where I had that second leader, but I really wanted to push a little further and kept drawing and didn't bust, you know. And so it, it did result in some exciting moments, some fun moments, but also you know, and it, I don't think it's always just the fault of the player saying, oh, I'm just pushing my luck too far. I think this really does allow you to just kind of end your round too quickly or potentially lose a round. So a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a rough edge on that part of, on, the, on that piece of the game, yeah. I think. Although less people think that the leader cards are all bad. There actually are benefits to it, too. They can be used as a wild resource, which is great. Or there may be reasons why you even want to draw two of those leader cards, right. because if you have two leader cards at the end of the round, you can turn in those two leaders for a knowledge card and knowledge cards were basically individual abilities that are ongoing throughout the game like they did some basic things like expanding your ability to hold reserves or to get an extra resource in the reconciliation phase at the end that sort of thing but so they did have both a a positive and a negative and so you really had to make some strategic decisions about what do i need to do do i need a knowledge card right now or do i need to be trying to get those 10 or 5 status points that are going to come from not drawing my leader cards so there's some interesting you know tension in that in that decision making process yeah and let me ask you about that those those knowledge cards because i did think that was really interesting actually a great a great choice again on why you might push your luck to get to a second one or not but with the knowledge cards there were six knowledge cards and they did in a first gameplay give each of us a little bit of asymmetric play to some extent and some of the cards even impacted whether you wanted two or less leaders in your deck do you think that that would get redundant like i i almost felt like it would be great if kind of like Quacks of Quedlinburg or Wonderland's War, where if maybe there was a different set of leader cards that you could mix and match so that every game, the, the or not, not leader cards, knowledge cards, that there might be some different knowledge available just to mix it up, just to give you some, some variety. So I, I thought that that was a great piece of it, gave you a little engine building, gave you an extra motivation. But what did you guys think? Do you feel like that would be enough or do you think that it would you know, would, would you like to see more variety there? Yeah, that was going to be the next thing I brought up, Tim, was I thought those knowledge cards were great, but I would like to see some some variability in those. Either have the sets like Quacks and Quedlinburg, or I don't know, from a design perspective, what's easier? Do you have, you know, maybe a set, like 10 of them and you choose six of them each game or it's, yeah, you know. Yeah. Anyway, something to mix it up would be great. Those knowledge cards were cool because you were talking about the push your luck aspect, which 
I agree. I think it's very, very punishing here. Too punishing. He says in the rules, you do not want to overextend or overreach, whatever the term is. It's a big, huge warning. So it's almost saying like, stop when you get to, there's the one knowledge card that lets you mitigate that. It was at any point in your turn, you can draw three cards on the top of your deck and rearrange them in any order. I went after that one right away. That way I could have two leaders every round in no fear. Once I had the two leaders up, draw the next three cards. If one of those is a leader, just take the other two and then stop right there. So that was, there's one way to mitigate it. And I thought that was the most crucial card in the game because I did not want to bust. So to me, that's an auto buy every time. And then you're just going to mix and match from there. So this game would get pretty samey for me with those same six knowledge cards. While they're fascinating on the one hand, I would love to see more options for that part of the game. I want to second that. Yeah, I agree. I had the same thought while we were playing. I thought this would be awesome if we had a lot more knowledge cards and we could mix and match or do it, you know, Dominion style where you just take different ones and and kind of build it and see what kind of combos you can build off those. I think that would be really interesting. Homebrew it. Riley, any other mechanisms you want to talk about? Yeah. So the semi-cooperative side of things. It started off and I thought, this is really easy. It's not hard for any of us to meet their needs, really. Like, yeah, there was a little bit of bad luck. We had two people that needed some needs met. And we didn't quite understand the game. We messed that part up a little bit. But then later we figured out like, oh, yeah, we definitely could have done that better. And this is how that works. You know, you're learning a game for the first time, right? But as the game got on and we were progressing, all of a sudden it was like, oh, my gosh, I really, really need to get some fish. I'm saving this fish and that's got to go to Adam. Oh, this bison needs to go to Tim. You know, like, oh, what do they have? Okay, he's got bison so he can feed Chris. Great. Okay, yeah, like. That got really interesting to me and really exciting. Like I, there was a point where I was thinking, you know, oh, okay, it's not, it's not that semi-cooperative, but it did turn out to be that way. And I could totally see somebody deciding to be that player where here at the very final round, right? Chris had the final turn. All I needed was one corn and then we survive the game. Everybody wins. I had the most points. So like, yeah, I'm the grand winner. Chris could have just as easily been like, I'm going to take whatever place last. Oh, you were last place, right? Oh, by far. Yeah. <laughs> decisively last place. You were decisively last place. You could have easily been like, I'm last place. So, you know, screw all of you. I'm not giving you corn. I almost did that. Tank the game. Oh my gosh, you monster. <laughs> you could have totally. Why didn't you do that? Like, what a crazy thing in a game, right? You can just sabotage it if you want to. Don't don't let Riley get first. Yeah. So I don't know how I feel about that, but I don't know. Like that just depends on your group's play style. I think this game is a social experiment. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it literally in the rule book explains the theme, explains that we all die together or we all win together, but then one person is the prestigious leader. And so it kind of depends on how does that make you feel psychologically do you just want to win the game and and great and then somebody else is even better or do you feel like if you don't win if you're not first you're last right like yeah so if that's if that's the situation then why wouldn't you tank it and i don't know i mean i agree i think this is not going to work well for a lot of people like there are people i played with before that are just sore losers and if they don't have a chance to win they're just they're out they're ready to move on to the next game everybody else just lost right now And that sucks. But also, maybe I just learned I don't ever want to play a game with that person again. On the other hand, 
you know, like we're pl- we play in league scoring where we want to kind of keep track of how people are scoring. So do you ever want Adam to get another win when he's already in the lead right now? No, let's take it and <laughs> let's get out of here. So it, it is a very interesting choice. And I think you were going to learn a little bit about the group you're playing with. If you go in it thematically and about like, hey, we're a civilization trying to just survive as a species. And if we can do this, then great. We'll, you know, wrangle for first place. But as long as we all win together, that's the most important thing. I mean, I don't know. It's it's you kind of have to go in just understanding that what the theme is and getting into it with the spirit of the game. If you don't or if your group is not going to do that, this game is probably not going to work. Tim, you do like the final thoughts already, man. Like, save this. This stuff's great. Yeah, save know, this I stuff. Was, <laughs> but, <laughs> but Riley jumped in with, with you know with that that concept, and that's that's the key, right? It's, but anyway, yeah, is a is a semi co op. This reminded me one of the only games I ever played that had a similar semi co op mode to it was like Marvel Legendary. And that is a game where everybody's fighting to win against the villains, but then you score up at the end. And this is kind of like that. And I never really like that because it's just, you know, why? How does that work thematically? Why are we either we're working, we're cooperating, but then we're still competing against each other. I, I think it works a little better here than Marvel Legendary because I think there's some more interesting push and pull here, but I don't think it works a whole lot better for me personally. It's so interesting to me that you bring up Marvel Legendary. That was the game that really like pushed me into the hobby of seeing beyond like Catan and, uh, you know, Ticket to Ride, that kind of thing. That's what like, holy cow, here's this awesome Marvel game, you know, and I was playing it a lot. And I think in the rule book, the way they describe it. And so I think I thought of it the same way this way is that everybody wins, but then there's an MVP. Mm-hmm. And so in my head, every time I'm like, oh, yeah, like we're part of this team and we're, you know, we're the Avengers in Marvel deck building. Like I'm like Thor and you're like Captain America type thing. And you're you are the MVP here. You did more damage. You took out more thugs, all this stuff. Right. And I think that kind of translated for me here where we're all these different tribes, essentially. You know, we have different specialties. Yeah, we're not we're not one like a group, but we are one in the land. We are one. And we have to work together in order to survive. Otherwise, we all will fall. You know, like, yeah, I might be able to survive a little bit longer. But if Adam dies, then there goes my fish for the rest of the year. That's going to make surviving the rest of the year really hard. So it's like it's over, you know, and then I fall and then somebody else falls. It's that whole chain reaction thing. So, well, they describe it literally as you're becoming the chief. So whoever is the MVP becomes the chief and everybody else still wins. Mm -hmm. But that's just how I view it. I'm a very cooperative, focused person anyways. (laughs) And that thematically made sense to me, which actually I I don't want to stray too far into theme. But, you know, since everybody else is talking about it, I will just say (laughs) that this is this is one of the things that I found that I was excited about for this game, because one of the one of the things that the designer, Connor Alexander, has talked about is bringing that in, indigenous perspective to gaming. And that's exactly what I wanted to see. And I think that's what this is all about. I think it's about bringing that kind of a perspective that, you know, we succeed as a community or we fail as a community, um, but bringing it back to mechanisms again and theme and how they meld here. One of the things we hadn't really talked about, but I think is also both thematically important and is also part of what I understand to be the indigenous perspective here is the gifting mechanism. That is a huge part of this game. It's probably the place where you're going to score most of your points. If I don't have enough stuff 
I'm going to be counting on the community to get me the resources that I need. And this is not something that was just made up for the game, as I understand it. And I am by no means any kind of an expert on uh, indigenous North American cultures, but that the gifting economy is is something that has is found in in many cultures. And the idea here is that you're going to be getting points or status points, which translate at the end of the round into victory points if you're first, second, or third. And that every time I give a resource to Adam or Riley or Tim, I'm getting two status points for that. So I'm kind of showing what a good leader I am by being able to provide not only for my community, but to be able to help out the communities around me as well. And that is actually quite a a useful thing, um, being able to give up your resources. And as you're giving up those resources, you're not just thinking about, I'm getting points for this, but you're also thinking strategically about where those resources can be best spent. So if I think Tim's going to be having trouble with corn next round, maybe I want to put a little bit of corn his way so we don't all end up dying because Tim didn't have enough corn. So there's some strategy there as well. I just found that to be a thematically very well tied in. I think thematically, this is where this game shines, maybe more so than any other game we've played. The Tim, you're touching on the kind of social lesson it teaches. Chris, that's exactly what you're just talking about. But the economy in this game is fantastic. You have to share in order for everybody to win. And that's how you get more status each round. You share these resources with the other people. And the more you share, the more points you get. And that's how you collect more kind of, I don't know, it's like leadership points or how did you help the most points uh, for the throughout the game? So that ties into the mechanism there. And then you see this all the time, right? In society, you see, look at any team, you got a hockey team, baseball team, any situation, a co-op, farming co-op, any situation where all of these people work together for the team to succeed and it's great. But how often do you see it in board games? It's never like that. It's always, there's one winner. I'm going to take you down. It doesn't matter if we all do well. I'm going to do my best so that I'm the winner, you're second, third, fourth. Whereas this game is like, everybody wins and now we're stronger for it. So I think that's absolutely fantastic. But you don't see it in these economic kind of warfare games. It teaches a great lesson, like especially as resources dwindle, the globe's getting hotter. We're going to have to share more and do our part and help each other out to get through it. So I don't know. I'm going a little big picture here. Slow down, Adam. (laughs) It's just a board game. But some interesting message and the theme in this game is just fantastic. Adam brought up sports teams and how you can have a sports team and everybody wins together. And then, you know, there, there might be an MVP with it. And the difference with this is this is not a team's game. And so if it had been a team's game, I feel like I could have gotten into that. I, I could have gotten into that spirit easier. And again, this may say a little bit about my psychology and my upbringing and, and the culture that I've been brought up in, which is exactly what I think Connor is trying to tell the story of here. You know, there there is a story of like, we want the whole society to succeed. And then if I do my best at it, then I might be elevated a little bit in a sports team, right? You're really still trying to win for the whole team because everybody benefits if the team wins. If this had been, if this similar type of game had been done in a team mode and where, you know, you're playing to make sure your team wins, I'm a hundred, like that is, I could a hundred percent get behind that so easily. Like that would feel more normal to me than this felt to me. Like, but, but it was really interesting. And, but let me jump into the production for a second. Okay. So we, we, we talked a little bit about the theme. Adam, Adam, you want to say something? Jump in. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, Tim, first of all, because is there, does it say in the rule book that this isn't a team game or did you just decide that? Well, it's not a team versus team game. Uh, okay. It's not about it. It is a team game, right? It's like everybody wins. It's a cooperative game. It's a cooperative game with a, with an MVP. It's different though. If it's a team game where it's like, Hey, at least I 
won against this other team, I think I, I think it would feel more like, hey, I'm playing a competitive game and I'm doing something that's going to help my team win. And then if there's an MVP on the team, that's cool. And that adds, adds a different dynamic to it, right? This game was really interesting and to the point where like at the beginning of the game, I said, hey, you know, this is our first time playing. We want to try this out. Nobody tanked the game. Can we all get behind that? And everyone's like, yeah, okay. And then about three turns in, I was deciding on something I was going to do. And somebody said, if you do that right now, I'm going to tank the game next round. <laughs> Who said that? And I was like, you're right. That would be better for society. I think you and Steve both said that. And yeah, and now you're right. That would be better for the whole whole society, even though I knew for me to win the game, I could have made a decision that would have helped me be more likely to win the game. But I also understood that. Why would you guys help me next round? Why why even let me go through with that, right? So it is a very challenging them- like thematic decision. And I think, again, I think it tells an interesting story. And I think what he tried to do here works as a social experiment. Yeah. And it's kind of like saying, what what is it like to work together as a culture, even if you have the opportunity to maybe get ahead a little bit? Yeah. Well, and jumping on that, right? Why is the game called Wolves? It has that whole mentality of lone wolf. That's the common saying, right? The common phrase, a lone wolf isn't going to survive out here. You have to have a pack. You have to work together. Because I was thinking, why not just call it a cooperative game, right? Like, that's what Marvel does with theirs. It's just a cooperative game. They don't call it semi-cooperative, even though it could be viewed that way. And as I was thinking about that, it's like, well, we are different tribes. And so whoever is going to be the MVP, they are the chief. Their tribe will thrive and be managing the other people and definitely keeping them alive, but they are in charge at that point, right? And so as far as thematicness goes, yeah, I can see the semi-cooperative side of that. And I'm glad that nobody tanked it, but I can definitely see somebody tanking a game. And like if Chris had done it, it would have been so epic. I would have been so pissed at him, (laughs) but I also would have loved it at the same time. I've been like, you son of a gun. But you also... Tim, there was a point near the end of the game where Adam was trying to give you six things so that he... Oh, it was the second to last round. He was trying to give you six things so that he could get two tokens back because of his knowledge. Thank you, Riley. Yeah, and we were all... I was like, (laughs) if you give that to me, I will definitely take it all. But because you were a lower status than him, you were able to just say, all I want is these three things. And it stopped him from giving (laughs) this ability, which put us all in a rougher spot the next round. We literally like barely won the next round and survived but oh boy like that was a cutthroat move and i was like oh my gosh this is this is more cutthroat than i realized well i don't remember the exact scenario but i do remember that it didn't feel like i was just being mean but it did feel like it gave me a better opportunity to do to do something later i don't maybe oh it's because that round i would have been able to get the two point ships instead of the one point ship that round and i needed it to even be successful the rest of the game but i didn't feel like i tanked the whole economy right we still won the whole the whole civilization won so i clearly was playing exactly the way i was supposed to play no i i totally agree it was awesome it was a genius moment and clearly i was not going to tank this game because i'm the guy who feels bad when he breaks an alliance in rising sun we were supposed to break the (laughs) alliance um so we've talked a lot about philosophy here and I think that's great. I actually think that's actually one of the things that's interesting about this game is because it is so philosophically different from the vast majority of very colonialist types of board games that we play that I think that that's something that's really worth talking about. And it's one of the things that makes this game interesting. It's one of the things that makes this game truly, truly unique. But now I'm going to go to the really basic level and talk about the production. 
And I'm sad to say that the production is the one place in this game that I felt myself really scratching my head and feeling a little bit sad. And it's not because any piece of it was bad or unpleasant. This is a game that has a very simple production to it. But to me, it seemed like a missed opportunity because there could have been some really amazing art done here. There actually was some amazing art. I mean, the cover art on the box of this game, I absolutely loved. The art on the cards, I absolutely loved. But one of the things I noticed was you had these like five very distinct and very different types of art throughout the game. So you had these kind of beautiful watercolor nature um, drawings on the cards, which were really cool. And then on the box, there was this beautiful drawing of the two wolves face to face in a style that I normally associate with Pacific Northwest indigenous peoples. And then you had on the overall graphic design of the game, you had this almost futuristic circuit board looking kind of art. It looked so different. It just didn't feel cohesive, even though the individual parts were nice. And then the player boards and this circular status track in the middle had almost no graphic design to them at all. They were very plain. And it looked to me like this is an opportunity. They could have taken all of those empty spaces and put the amazing artwork, spread it out into those big empty spaces. And it just made me sad because that was one of the things that drew me to Coyote and Crow, this the terrific stuff that came out graphically in that book. And I wish more of it had been done here. So not a complaint about the art, but a complaint that we just didn't get more of it. Yeah, you're making some decent points, Chris. Now that I'm looking back at it, it it, it did jump out as being starkly different than the beautiful art you mentioned on the cards. Yeah, then the the player board in the middle, does it have any cultural significance? I don't know. Or is that just a design choice? Maybe Riley knows a little bit more than me. You know, but if that is some sort of culturally significant symbol, then that would be cool to know. But I don't recognize it as as anything indigenous. So yeah, you make some great points, Chris. The art mismatch was a little jarring. It didn't really bug me or I didn't really notice it until you started talking about it more. And I'm like, you know what? That was kind of strange. Interesting there. I don't have much else to say about the production other than I believe this is still a prototype. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure on like I have a little bit of indigenous background here and uh, being part Native American, I I don't recognize anything that would necessarily stand out. But, you know, there's a lot of different tribes in different regions. But I was taken aback when you were saying that when you started out, I was I was ready to disagree and, you know, put up fisticuffs, you know, slap you with my glove. But no, I uh, no glove slapping, please. <laughs> I think you're right. Kind of. There is some uh, maybe a little bit of dissonance mm-hmm. in the styles. I like I love the meeples. I love that they have the symbols of the different tribes that you're playing as. I think the art on the cards themselves are very beautiful, but it almost doesn't all tie together where maybe the community mats could have just had a little bit more to them. Uh, maybe the status board, like I, it does this spiral and it makes perfect sense kind of why it does that. There were even a couple times though that that caused, I think, a little bit of confusion and granted that we're on tabletop simulator, right? We're, we're playing digitally. So sometimes you're just seeing it at the wrong angle and it looks like somebody's further or, oh, did you move the wrong one type of thing? Like, I I do think that it looks really nice. Everything looks nice. I'm excited about the production that's there, but I totally get what you're saying, 
So I can't say that I disagree. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the challenge with talking about a game that's up on crowdfunding Mm -hmm. and Kickstarter right now. And several times when we've done this in the past, that final production ended up somewhat different than what we played with. And so, you know, I don't I'm not going to get too negative on it. I think the general graphic design was easy to understand and easy to use. I think the clear miss here was that the the leader cards were just black Mm -hmm. that said leader on them. And my guess if I was going to guess, and I hope they do this, that they will put unique artwork yeah. Yeah. that represents that civilization on each of those leader cards. So you get a little bit added and maybe some improved artwork on some of the, you know, the, the knowledge cards, which felt like stock artwork to me. You know, so I think there's an, a clear opportunity where if this gets funded and they go to production on this, they're going to probably put some more some of the money that comes from the funding into artwork and into into some of those elements that we are just not seeing. So I won't spend a lot of time with that right now. Um, I did want to mention that this game has an environmental commitment, Mm -hmm. which I'm always excited to see, especially in our current state of climate catastrophe in Phoenix right now, where it's been 117 degrees for 10 days straight at this point. But it says wolves won't include any plastics, no baggies, no shrink wrap, nothing. Instead, the game will be made from a combination of recycled, sustainable, biodegradable materials throughout that's great. I'm yeah. glad to see that in a game, and and I think uh, important for what the what the goal of this game is from a vision and you know representation perspective goes. The other thing I want to mention was about the theme though, which Chris talked about at the start of the game, right? Native American society that didn't have to deal with colonization was able to develop on their own, and I think this is a cool story. If you just read the story, this game doesn't feel like that at all. It doesn't feel like a futuristic Native American world, but it tells you, hey, this is before that. This is where these civilizations are just starting to kind of build their themselves up. And so you don't feel that future theme, but just reading that in the rule book actually was really exciting to me and, and made me feel that a little bit as I was playing the game as well, thinking like, hey, this is kind of like the post-apocalyptic world, but you know, reverse. This is the past when things were not as developed as they are right now. And someone's just finding a way to develop that civilization. And we're getting to be a part of that. And I thought that was a pretty cool theme, even though you don't really see it in the game. Maybe some of that will come through in the final artwork. But uh, I did like the, the concept of the theme here. All right, well, let's jump into our final thoughts. And the question that we always ask is, would you request to play this game again? And I think it's always useful to ask the question when a game is on crowdfunding is, would you back this game as well? Are you planning to back this game? You know, we're talking to our listeners and, you know, we want to give them our honest opinions about whether we think it's something that they should back. So let's jump into that. Well, which one shall I take first? The answer to whether I would ask to play this one again, the answer, the answer is yes. I feel like I need a second play of this one to draw more conclusions about it. I'm fascinated by it. There's a lot of things in here that this game does that are super interesting. But I think the thing that would be a limiting factor is something that we had talked about a bit. And that is it's going to be extremely, extremely, extremely group dependent because you're always going to have some doofus who's going to like show up if you have a random group of people who's going to want to tank the game. And that's not going to be fun in this situation. And it's way too easy to do in this situation. So I'm not sure that this is a game that would go into heavy rotation because of that fact. But if I had a great group of people to play with, like you guys, again, I would love to dig into this one and see how a second play felt. Because I felt in this one, I mean, clearly I didn't <laughs> I didn't get it because I was I came in dead last. Um, but I feel like I would like to 
dig into the strategy a little bit and try to manipulate it a little bit more than I did, which is actually kind of the fun thing. It was like, I like the feeling of your, as you're handing out these gifts, it's your feeling not like a, a conqueror, but is this kind of somebody very clever. So I feel like this is a game that could make you feel clever if you if you get the um, the concepts down. And I would like to try that again and see how I feel about it. Do I plan to back this one? I think I will back this one for a couple of reasons. One, because I think it would be fun to try again. And secondly, because I still believe in the project, the same reason that I bought Coyote and Crow. Um, I'm inspired by it. I want to see more of this. And I feel like the best way I can do that is to just keep putting my money where where my mouth is. And I think it's deserving of it. I think this is a game that even for the the flaws that we've mentioned, or not even flaws is the right word, but the challenges in keeping this as a, as a regularly played game, I still think it has merit and it deserves to be in my collection because of that. Yeah, Chris, I'm with you as far as requesting to play this one again. I would love to play this one again, at least two or three or four more times in its current state. I really want to see where the development goes. But right now, the game has this amazing economy. I really like the economy here. And you're like Chris said, you're kind of being nice. You're doing favors, but the, just the right amount of favors, not too much. You want to you want to still kind of hose them and not trigger their bonuses and so you're just doing enough. And part of that is the positioning on this status track. That's how you get points every round. And then you want to set yourself up for next round. So I think there's a lot of good choices in that. Am I going to push to get first place and get those three chips instead of just the one or none? Do I, am I going to hang back and last and gather all these resources to go big next round? There's a lot of this maneuvering and ship and gaminess in this game, which is, you know, that's why you play board games. So right now, I, I think there's plenty of choices, plenty of gaminess, plenty of the interactions fantastic here. But I would think I would want to see something more as the the game goes on, maybe a more broken out like, oh, you just fulfilled somebody's needs. You get three points instead of just two points for doing that. A little more development in those knowledge cards. I think Mm -hmm. that would be great. Some, Some ways to change it up and add little spice and little different combinations, I think are going to make this game a home run. I want to watch it for sure. Check out the development, see if there's any artwork changes, see if they add or what they're going to add to the game based on still in early feedback and getting early. So we'll see how this game develops. That's what I want to follow and look forward to. So I'm still on the fence as far as if I'm going to back this one. What about you, Riley? Yeah, I hear you on a lot of that. I agree. I think I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, what you guys have said with, that I know specifically some groups that I will never play this with because one person in that group, I, like I love playing games with them, but I know that they would tank this game if it meant that nobody would win and they if they're not going to win type of thing. And that's really heartbreaking. But even still, I look at all these other games that I have. I'm The mind you can play more than once, right? Like you can play that a lot. Um, but it, it's also one of those things that just feels like a really interesting concept too of, Like, we're not talking, but we have to play these cards in a certain order. And what's that order? And I think that's just a really interesting social experiment. Like, and so for that, I think it would cause a lot of really cool, interesting conversation with other groups that I have. And I know a lot of other groups I have would be really, really excited to play this and win or lose, right? There's still those really interesting decisions, especially interesting when you have somebody who's kind of trying to undermine other people and, and just sneak it, not take the full deal. There's there's a lot of really clever decisions in this game. I mean, I thought that I was going to be hosed because in the final round, I was the highest rank. 
and the highest rank, nobody has to accept their gifts. And so I thought, I'm I'm not going to earn any points this round. And I ended up getting enough to be able to just, all I needed is was at least one point and I could hold the the lead for the rest of the game. Uh, I would definitely ask to play this again. I, I'm really excited. In the break between, I was telling my wife already, like, spoiler, I loved it. Like, it was really, really fun. I do hope that some of the things that we talked about there with the production will come up maybe get a little more refined there. It would be interesting to see what other things they could do with it. Um, I mean, even just looking at like resources, what if you have like double resources on some things, like instead of just one bison, you have two bison, you know, like a, a plentiful harvest or whatever, and you get more corn, whatever it is. There's, I think there's a lot of interesting things that could be tweaked there, and, and but maybe not. Maybe that would throw the game off and the balance off and and make it more swingy in other ways, I guess. I'm not sure. I am backing this right now, and I'm not going to pull out because I had so much fun. I would, well, I wouldn't actually pull out probably because just like Chris said, I want to support indigenous designers, especially a company that is focused on providing jobs or providing work for other indigenous folks in the community and bringing people into the community. It's really cool. Like I tried multiple times to connect with indigenous people in this board game community. And I think I got like one or two. Uh, And then after Coyote and Crow funded, and then like their last one, I started meeting way more. And now I know quite a few, uh, whether they're like artists or just players or designers, whatever it is, you know, a lot of them were probably here the whole time, but that visibility and that's what they're doing, as well as the environmental push there. Like, I love seeing that kind of thing. So they've kind of got two points there. And I do want to add on here, like the next stretch goal, I think they might have unlocked it. I'm sure they will have unlocked it by the time this episode comes out, is that they'll do the tabletop simulator mod for everybody. Uh, that would be accessible. Eventually, board game arena. And then they're going to do a dollar per backer donation to Illuminative, which focuses on the indigenous rights and initiatives. It's led by native women. And so already like right there, like an an indigenous woman-led nonprofit, I think that's worth supporting. Um, They do like a lot of good things like that. They want to do 10 $1,000 grants to native writers, artists, and designers who want to attend game conventions like they want to get that accessibility and visibility of indigenous folks in this space out there and i think that's worth supporting just by itself oh you make some really good points there riley and the fact that if you look at these stretch goals they are the money is not just going to making this game which may be a worthwhile project in and of itself but also that they are putting that money into the indigenous community and growing the board game community within there. And that's awesome. So let me give you my thoughts about this game. Now, first you might've, when we were talking about our, the, the mechanisms here, I may have sounded a little bit negative, but I want to be clear. I actually did have a really fun time playing this. There were a lot of fun moments in the game, but it, it's going to be good for certain players. First of all, you don't have a lot of agency in what happens with your deck draw. Uh, you don't have any control of your deck. And so what's going to happen turn round to round for when you're drawing out of your deck, you you just don't have any control of that. You can make some decisions. Do I stop now? Do I keep going? There's push your luck. And that's fun. That's where the fun really comes in. But again, there are, there are times when you're just going to draw bad and it's just bad and there's nothing good about it, right? So, so you have to go into it understanding what this game is. Also, the game is mostly a cooperative game. I mean, that's you're playing it cooperative, trying to get a little bit of a leg up. And so I'm not a big fan of cooperative play. 
it's just not as fun for me. It's not as fun for me as just developing, developing my own thing, you know, doing my own engine, take, making my decisions just for, you know, for the sake of my own goals. And, and so this is not a game that the common goal here wasn't as fun for me as a lot of games would be. But I think they did a really interesting job of putting this together. I would be happy to play it again. I probably wouldn't request to play it again. And, um, you know, I probably won't back it and not because I don't believe in what the, you know, what the goal of this is and the reasoning behind it, but because I just don't want stuff in my house that I'm not going to use. And that's, that's the key of it. So if one of you guys backed it and we got a chance to play it at a con or something, I'll, I'll, I'd love to, I'll jump in and get into this game. I don't think it's going to get enough play for me to add it to my collection, so I won't be backing it. But really interesting game. I think, you know, fascinating project, interesting social experiment. You want to find out which of your friends are total jerks. You play this game with them and you'll you'll discover that after a gameplay or two. All right. Um, so that'll wrap up our conversation on Wolves. Let's jump into some games that have been on our table right after this. All right, welcome back. What have we had on our table recently? So I got a bunch of games on my table recently and uh, so much fun. I spent the last week camping in Maine while you guys were hanging out in Long Beach and doing that very entertaining episode with, with your partners. I was sitting at a picnic table a lot of that week playing board games with members of my family. And mind you, this is a group of people that none of them are gamers. And the people who do like to play games are generally ones who like to play old school card games, which you guys know how I feel about old school card games. (laughs) But I did bring a couple of lightweight games and I was surprised that a couple of my family members had lightweight games as well, and we actually got a bunch of them played. One of them was a game, actually, it was uh, a very lovely gift from Riley, Patchwork Doodle, which is a game that uh, during a recent visit, my family and his family played and had a great time. We were kind of taken by it, and, and he very thoughtfully got me a copy of it, and I brought it. My brother, who is kind of about as anti-board games as you can get, I think I played Star Realm. He's like, oh my God, why would I ever want to think? This is so complicated. How could I ever do this? He's like, I might go buy this patchwork game. So, bam, win right there. Another game that we played was... Azul. That's the one that kind of, yeah, no, seriously, that's the one that actually kind of shocked me. This same brother who told me that he never wants to think when he's playing games actually owned a copy of Azul, which caught me by surprise completely. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) I snuck a copy to him, Chris. I I sent him a copy. (laughs) (laughs) He was making these completely cornball moves. And I was like, that's not the way you do it. You should, you might want to consider doing this or that or the other thing. And that's a, I don't want to think when I'm playing games. I just want to play like, (laughs) well, yeah, Azul is a pretty thinky game. But the highlight of the week to me was the game that we played that was new to me. And that was Ticket to Ride San Francisco. And I I had so much fun with this game. Part of it was just because I spent just so much time in my life in San Francisco that I just I love the city. And so thematically, it was a lot of fun. But I have never played any of the Ticket to Ride games, which is kind of sacrilege in our hobby. And this game, from what I understand of the original in comparison to San Francisco and some of the other city specific ones, which are lighter and smaller, was that this is a great, not quite 
I don't want to say mindless. It's not. It's definitely it's probably too thinky for my brother who wants to complain about thinking during board games. But you know, you can really jump into it. It's a five minute rules teach. You can play it with kids. You can play it with grown ups. There's enough thinking and strategizing to satisfy somebody like me. You know, it's it's not going to be the centerpiece for a big game night. But boy, it sure was fun sitting around the picnic table with a game of Ticket to Ride San Francisco sitting out there. You know, looking at these funky little, I don't know, it was like a chowder bread bowl of, uh, you know, soup. Sourdough bowl, Chris? Is that what you're trying to talk about? Yeah. yeah. From yeah. Fisherman's <laughs> Wharf. So I had a ton of fun with that. I actually think I may need to pick up a, a copy of that game. Just one other note on that. I actually think when you guys did your episode, the last week episode, somebody had mentioned, I think it was you, Tim, that trekking the world was your ticket to ride killer yeah. and that actually made me think i'm like what what do i think about that because i've played both of the games now or at least the smaller version of ticket to ride and the og version of trekking the world and i think my answer is i like how simple quick easy the short rules teach and the fact that ticket to ride at least the city version is something you can play with almost anybody and no one's going to get scared away by it. And that, to me, is a pretty valuable thing to have in a lightweight game. Yeah, I'll just comment on that really quickly, Chris, because I haven't played the city versions, the New York or San Francisco, which are the two kind of like lighter, quicker versions of it. And that may change the feel a little bit to it. But I'm glad you finally got a chance to explore. I was just looking at the artwork and the kind of the gameplay of this, and it feels like just it's taken the ride, just a smaller, mm-hmm. quicker version of it. And so you you got a pretty good sense on how it feels at this point. Does that make you want to try the bigger Ticket to Ride? Or do you think this is great as is? You know, honestly, I'm kind of saying as is. You know, Tim convinced me with his commentary. There are other games. I mean, route building games like Pan Am or you know, that sort of thing that you know, maybe scratch that itch for me. This one doesn't scratch the itch for the route building game. I mean, it does that too, I suppose. But the itch that it scratches that's unique for me is having a really small box light game that I can take on a trip like this and teach to people who don't normally play board games. The original Ticket to Ride is on Board Game Arena, by the way, Chris. I have Mm. a constantly running game with my family Mm. going on there all the time. So if you ever want to try the full version of it and you probably get right into it now that you've learned this one, we could jump in a game there. It's pretty easy. Cool. That's a fun pick, Chris. I'm just looking at it now. The the way they tie in the theme, there's little tickets for the trolley trains and all that. It's really, really cute. That's cool. Yeah. I have a game I want to talk about. And this one was with Tim. He came out, uh, coincidentally, he was here for my birthday and he was able to get over on Sunday night. You maybe have heard the podcast we recorded with our partners at 30, but Tim came over Sunday as well. And we played Ankh, Gods of Egypt. What a delight. This is one of my favorite games of all time. Tim was interested in playing it again, so we got it set up and we had a fantastic game. I thought, we I'll try some different strategies. I'll say I was trying some different strategy. We tried a different scenario I didn't want to kick Tim all over the place and make him hate Ankh. So I tried some of these different strategies, <laughs> let him walk all over me and pound <laughs> me into the dirt. And he got the victory big time. It was another great play. Some interesting moments came up. Some little edge corner funky cases came out that I hadn't seen before, even though I'd played the game, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine times now. Some new things are still happening. The different God powers are a delight. I am curious to hear how your thoughts lie with Aunt gods of egypt after you've had uh, i think it's your first play at two players and you've had seven days to yeah. sit and reflect more than seven days to reflect back 
Tim, how are you feeling about Ankh at two and in general? Yeah, well, first we got a chance to play. We we decided to try one of the other scenarios and it happened to be a scenario that was recommended for two players. And it basically split the board up into just two halves at the start. And so it was not a whole lot of regions, but it's, it ended up being five regions by the end of the game after you put some camels out there. There was an alternate to that same scenario where you would start with four regions. And I think that probably would even be a more fun way to start off the, the game. Yeah. But it was cool to see how a different scenario played out. It, it wasn't drastically different it, as much as I guess I was hoping that it would that one of the different scenarios would be. So, again, interesting probably to explore more of them and see where else it goes. As a two player game, though, this probably worked the best out of any of Eric Lang's trilogy of games as a two-player game like rising sun isn't you know you can't even play it two players it doesn't it's not even a two-player game and blood rage is fun two-player chris and i played a lot of a two-player but i think a game like that is always going to be more fun when there's more interaction more players going on so yeah i thought it was great i thought it was i thought it was fun probably my favorite play of Ankh because i think as a two-player game it works really well still had some long thinky turns at some point but it was mostly pretty quick and we were moving into it pretty quickly so yeah i had a lot of fun with Ankh. played with some unique uh monsters this time again and just man the sculpts on those miniatures are so fantastic so fun time for me yeah i've had patchwork doodle on my table so much recently. It's not just with Chris, it's like with everybody, gamers, non-gamers, friends. We've showed it to a lot of people. We played it today and it's it's just so much fun. Kimmy and I, we really love Patchwork. We played it actually at Mox Boarding last year when we went to Portland and, and we bought it there. We played the Valentine's version, bought the regular version, there's no difference other than how it looks, right? We would play in teams with other people because it's just limited to two players. But that's one of the beautiful things about this one is that it can be played with more than two. You can have as many players as you want. And that's wonderful because patchwork is so much fun and it's even better with a bigger group, I think. But I, I won't get too much more into that because you already did. The other game that I have that I have been absolutely loving is Draftosaurus, which is such a fun little meeple drafting game. Uh, all the meeples are little dinosaurs. And this is on BGA. So Kimmy and I, we played a couple of rounds of it with Phil over on Organized Fun. We just did a little game day. And she had so much fun that we immediately bought it. We bought all the expansions with it. We haven't touched any of the expansions, but we've played it two players, which it works really well. Two players played it four, up to four players. It can go up to five. And every time it is an absolute blast, takes less than 10 minutes to play it, maybe five minutes to teach it. All you're doing is at the beginning of the game, you draw six dinosaurs out of this cloth bag everybody draws six of them one person rolls a die you're building a zoo and you're putting these dino meeples into different pens each pen has a kind of a, a goal and if you meet those goals or make progression on them you're going to earn points according to those goals so some of them might want you to have the same dinosaur in it so if you have four of these same dinosaurs they're worth 12 points if you have three it's eight points or whatever uh, some of them want you had to have different dinosaurs or pairs of dinosaurs. Some want you to have the most amongst all the boards. You know, there's all these different pens. Um, and then there's even another side to it that's a little bit more complex and has different rules. There's so much variability just in the base game. We probably didn't need the expansions, but we thought, 
why not? And those expansions aren't adding much complexity to it either. They add one dinosaur uh, and a board that goes above or below your board. And those rules are super easy to teach. Uh, I feel like I could probably teach them on a first play and people would immediately get it. There you go, Draftosaurus. That has been a big hit. Draftosaurus is a game I played a lot of. Uh, started on Board Game Arena. My mom sent me a copy for Christmas last year because I thought this would be a fun little light game. So we had a lot of pl- chance to play it in person as well. And uh, it had a little bit of an arc for me where I thought it was really fun the first few plays and it started to feel a little redundant, like you were doing the same things. But recently I've rediscovered a love for it. It feels like lately games, the, the way the dice rolls come out, they always change what I can do or what I can accomplish. And you know, drafting those Tyrannosaurus, which, you know, seem great because they give you an extra point in your pens, but then you sometimes the dice will roll and you can't play another dinosaur in that pen. And so it throws off your strategy. So I think this is a fun little light game, very sushi go like to me, you know, similar type of scoring mechanism, similar game length and weight. I think if you have one or either of those in your collection, you're going to have a fun, easy, approachable game to get anyone into. Have you played the other side of it? I have. Yeah, I, I have played the back side of it and it feels similar. It's nice to switch okay. it up once in a while. I haven't tried any of the other expansions, though. So I think definitely flip to the backside once in a while just to change it up. Nice. Um, but it's not going to not really going to you know feel very different for you. All right. The game I wanted to talk about was a game I got to play with Adam. I was so happy he taught it to me when that was Cat in the Box. This is a game that I've been really excited about. It was um, one of the board game geek Golden Geek nominees last year. And we talked about that a little bit on our episode. But uh, this is a trick taking game with a very unique premise and that your entire deck of cards, well numbered, have no suits on them. And so when you play the card, you pick the suit that it's going to be. And this seems like it's going to completely blow trick taking out of the water, but it doesn't really. It actually ends up feeling like a very traditional trick taker and the way that they've got the components set up makes it very easy to track all that stuff. What I think it actually does really well, though, is that it it has a little bit of an area control mechanism to it so that when you're playing a card, you're placing uh, based on the, the color and the number, you're placing a little token on a track marking what you just played and only one person can play that color and number in the game. And so you're trying to group these colors and numbers together because every orthogonally adjacent token you've got on the board at the end of the game, if you meet your betting goal at the end of the round, you're going to get that many points. And so you're both motivated to try to play a grouping together, but also you're going to bet one, two or three. How many tricks am I going to win in this round? And if you hit that number, you don't just get an extra point or two points. You get however many you're able to group together. So you kind of got mo- like multiple motivations for where you're, what colors you're picking with your numbers. The other thing that happens with this, though, is that if you want to go off suit, you can only do that with one color once per game. So like red is always the Trump suit. So if somebody plays their seven blue and you're like, well, I really want to win this trick, so I'll play the three red and win the trick because it's the Trump. That's the last time you're playing a red card that round. And so it's a very tough decision, very exciting. And if you can't do anything in a round either because you went off suit and blew all the colors you can play or because those rows filled up or you don't have the colors to match, you do a paradox. And that means you get negative points equal to the number of tricks that you won. And so it's a very fun push and pull about pushing for your goals, trying to hit the best bets that you can, but also not risk hitting a paradox. I had a blast with this. We played four player with Danielle and Sarah and really fun time for me. This was my highlight of the game night that we played together. This game breaks my brain. Is it complicated to learn? Is it 
It, it sounds no. so simple, but it sounds so complicated. I did. It, I always thought that too. When I heard other people explain it to me, I was like, this feels like it's going to be really heavy to get into. It's not. It actually is very, very simple to get in. It does not feel much heavier than any normal trick-taking game to play. So if you've played trick-taking, you'll get right into it. If you haven't, you just have the overhead of learning how to play a trick-taking game with a couple little minor rules. We did one practice round yeah. to introduce these guys, and I think all everybody had it shacked after the one practice oh that's what's happening here i get it let's go let's do this for real introduce this one to nighthawk and tater tot as well they loved it they've been thinking about those are my neighbors with their code names they want to have code names so we talk about them so that's nighthawk and tater tot special shout out to nighthawk who came over for my birthday surprise birthday even though he was incredibly sick but he came over he was a trooper and decided to help play wonderland's war for another little birthday celebration thank you guys for coming over that was a blast and i'm glad you're feeling better those are the code names just for when you talk about them like you don't actually talk to them that way when you meet them in person <laughs> no. right that's just for when you're talking about them no i don't public. i don't they don't make me call them nighthawk and tater tot when we're <laughs> hanging out which is nice Maybe I'm going to start doing that, though. That'd be kind of fun. (laughs) (laughs) So I noticed looking at the, uh, you know, quick browse of Cat in the Box on BGG that these are apparently quantum cats, which made me immediately think of the quantum ponds from Abduction. So there's a lot of quantum things in Adam's world right now. Same universe. Yeah. Going through a quantum phase. I have to acknowledge my ignorance in that. Of course, I've heard about Schrodinger's cat for years, and that's kind of what this game is supposed to be based on. But I don't actually know what Schrodinger's cat is or what it means or what it what you know what theory is or anything like that so the theme meant absolutely nothing to me but it was still fun and the mechanisms were fun to play around with and cute it's a very charming production as well all right cool well that will wrap up this episode riley thanks again for joining us uh riley from the board game community show if you enjoy the show please rate and review us on apple podcasts until next week take care everybody good night all bye bye so, <laughs> Riley, are we going to get a goodbye? Do we lose him right at the end? I guess that's a no. Bye-bye.